Section fifty one of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter eighty two. London, September twenty second, Old Style, seventeen forty nine. Dear boy, if I had faith in philters and love potions, I should suspect that you had given Sir Charles Williams some, by the manner in which he speaks of you, not only to me, but to everybody else. I will not repeat to you what he says of the extent and correctness of your knowledge, as it might either make you vain, or persuade you that you had already enough of what nobody can have too much. You will easily imagine how many questions I asked, and how narrowly I sifted him upon your subject. He answered me, and I dare say with truth, just as I could have wished, till satisfied entirely with his accounts of your character and learning, I inquired into other matters, intrinsically indeed of less consequence, but still of great consequence to every man, and of more to you than to almost any man. I mean your address, manners, and air. To these questions, the same truth which he had observed before, obliged him to give me much less satisfactory answers. And as he thought himself, in friendship both to you and me, obliged to tell me the disagreeable as well as the agreeable truths, upon the same principle I think myself obliged to repeat them to you. He told me then, that in company you were frequently most provokingly inattentive, absent, and distrait, that you came into a room and presented yourself very awkwardly, that at table you constantly threw down knives, forks, napkins, bread, etc., and that you neglected your person and dress, to a degree unpardonable at any age, and much more so at yours. These things, howsoever immaterial they may seem to people who do not know the world, and the nature of mankind, give me, who know them to be exceedingly material, very great concern. I have long distrusted you, and therefore frequently admonished you, upon these articles, and I tell you plainly, that I shall not be easy till I hear a very different account of them. I know no one thing more offensive to a company than inattention and distraction. It is showing them the utmost contempt, and people never forgive contempt. No man is distrait with the man he fears, or the woman he loves which is a proof that every man can get the better of that distraction, when he thinks it is worth his while to do so, and take my word for it, it is always worth his while. For my own part, I would rather be in company with a dead man than with an absent one, for if the dead man gives me no pleasure, at least he shows me no contempt, whereas the absent man, silently indeed but very plainly, tells me that he does not think me worth his attention." Besides, can an absent man make any observations upon the characters, customs, and manners of the company? No. He may be in the best companies all his lifetime, if they will admit him, which if I were they I would not, and never be one jot the wiser. I will never converse with an absent man. One may as well talk to a deaf one. It is in truth a practical blunder, to address ourselves to a man who we see plainly neither hears, minds, or understands us. Moreover, I aver that no man is, in any degree, fit for either business or conversation, who cannot and does not direct and command his attention to the present object, be that what it will. You know by experience that I grudge no expense in your education, but I will positively not keep you a flapper. You may read in Dr. Swift the description of those flappers, and the use they were of to your friends the Lilliputians, whose minds, Gulliver says, are so taken up with intense speculations, that they neither can speak nor attend to the discourses of others, without being roused by some external traction upon the organs of speech and hearing. For which reason, those people who are able to afford it, 
always keep a flapper in their family, as one of their domestics, nor ever walk about or make visits without him. This flapper is likewise employed diligently to attend his master in his walks, and upon occasion to give a soft flap upon his eye, because he is always so wrapped up in cogitation, that he is in manifest danger of falling down every precipice, and bounding his head against every post, and in the streets, of jostling others, or being jostled into the kennel himself. If Christian will undertake this province into the bargain, with all my heart, but I will not allow him any increase of wages upon that score. In short, I give you a fair warning, that when we meet, if you are absent in mind, I will soon be absent in body, for it will be impossible for me to stay in the room. And if at table you throw down your knife, plate, bread, etc., and hack the wing of a chicken for half an hour without being able to cut it off, and your sleeve all the time in another dish, I must rise from the table to escape the fever you would certainly give me. Good God! How I should be shocked if you came into my room for the first time with two left legs, presenting yourself with all the graces and dignity of a tailor, and your clothes hanging upon you like those in Monmouth Street, upon tender hooks, whereas I expect, nay, require, to see you present yourself with the easy and genteel air of a man of fashion, who has kept good company. I expect you not only well-dressed, but very well-dressed. I expect a gracefulness in all your motions, and something particularly engaging in your address. All this I expect, and all this it is in your power, by care and attention, to make me find. But to tell you the plain truth, if I do not find it, we shall not converse very much together, for I cannot stand inattention and awkwardness. It would endanger my health. You have often seen, and I have as often made you observe, L's distinguished inattention and awkwardness, wrapped up like a Lapuchin in intense thought, and possibly sometimes in no thought at all, which, I believe, is very often the case with absent people, he does not know his most intimate acquaintance by sight, or answers them as if he were at cross-purposes. He leaves his hat in one room, his sword in another, and would leave his shoes in a third, if his buckles, though awry, did not save them. His legs and arms, by his awkward management of them, seem to have undergone the question extraordinaire, and his head, always hanging upon one or other of his shoulders, seems to have received the first stroke upon a block. I sincerely value and esteem him for his parts, learning, and virtue, but for the soul of me I cannot love him in company. This will be universally the case, in common life, of every inattentive, awkward man, let his real merit and knowledge be ever so great. When I was of your age I desired to shine, as far as I was able, in every part of life, and was as attentive to my manners, my dress, and my air, in company of evenings, as to my books and my tutor in the mornings. A young fellow should be ambitious to shine in everything, and of the two, always rather overdo than underdo. These things are by no means trifles, they are of infinite consequence to those who are to be thrown into the great world, and would make a figure or a fortune in it. It is not sufficient to deserve well, one must please well too. Awkward, disagreeable merit will never carry anybody far. Wherever you find a good dancing-master, pray let him put you upon your haunches, not so much for the sake of dancing, as for coming into a room, and presenting yourself genteelly and gracefully. Women, whom you ought to endeavour to please, cannot forgive vulgar and awkward air and gestures. Il le faut du brillant. The generality of men are pretty like them, and are equally taken by the same exterior graces. I am very glad that you have received the diamond buckles safe. 
all I desire in return for them is, that they may be buckled even upon your feet, and that your stockings may not hide them. I should be sorry that you were an egregious fop, but I protest that of the two I would rather have you a fop than a sloven. I think negligence in my own dress, even at my age, when certainly I expect no advantages from my dress, would be indecent with regard to others. I have done with fine clothes, but I will have my plain clothes fit me, and made like other people's. In the evenings I recommend to you the company of women of fashion, who have a right to attention and will be paid it. Their company will smooth your manners, and give you a habit of attention and respect, of which you will find the advantage among men. My plan for you, from the beginning, has been to make you shine equally in the learned and in the polite world. The former part is almost completed to my wishes, and will, I am persuaded, in a little time more, be quite so. The latter part is still in your power to complete, and I flatter myself that you will do it, or else the former part will avail you very little, especially in your department, where the exterior address and graces do half the business. They must be the harbingers of your merit, or your merit will be very coldly received. All can, and do judge of the former, few of the latter." Mr. Hart tells me that you have grown very much since your illness. If you get up to five feet ten, or even nine inches, your figure will probably be a good one, and if well-dressed and genteel, will probably please, which is a much greater advantage to a man than people commonly think. Lord Bacon calls it a letter of recommendation. I would wish you to be the omnis homo, l'homme universel. You are nearer it, if you please, than ever anybody was at your age and if you will but, for the course of this next year only, exert your whole attention to your studies in the morning, and to your address, manners, air, and tournure in the evenings, you will be the man I wish you, and the man that is rarely seen. Our letters go at best so irregularly, and so often miscarry totally, that for greater security I repeat the same things. So I acknowledge by the last post Mr. Hart's letter of the 8th September New Style, I acknowledge it again by this to you. If this should find you still at Verona, let it inform you that I wish you would set out soon for Naples, unless Mr. Hart should think it better for you to stay at Verona, or any other place on this side of Rome, till you go there for the Jubilee. Nay, if he likes it better, I am very willing that you should go directly from Verona to Rome, for you cannot have too much of Rome, whether upon account of the language, the curiosities, or the company." My only reason for mentioning Naples is for the sake of the climate, upon account of your health, but if Mr. Hart thinks that your health is now so well restored as to be above climate, he may steer your course wherever he thinks proper, and for aught I know, your going directly to Rome, and consequently staying there so much the longer, may be as well as anything else. I think you and I cannot put our affairs in better hands than in Mr. Hart's, and I will stake his infallibility against the Pope's with some odds on his side. Apropos of the Pope, remember to be presented to him before you leave Rome, and go through the necessary ceremonies for it, whether of kissing his slipper or something else, for I would never deprive myself of anything that I wanted to do or see, by refusing to comply with an established custom. When I was in Catholic countries, I never declined kneeling in their churches at the elevation, nor elsewhere when the host went by. It is a complacence due to the custom of the place, and by no means, as some silly people have imagined, an implied approbation of their doctrine. Bodily attitudes and situations are things so very different in themselves, that I would quarrel with nobody about them. 
it may indeed be improper for Mr. Hart to pay that tribute of complacence, upon account of his character. This letter is a very long, and possibly a very tedious one, but my anxiety for your perfection is so great, and particularly at this critical and decisive period of your life, that I am only afraid of omitting, but never of repeating or dwelling too long upon anything that I think may be of the least use to you. Have the same anxiety for yourself that I have for you, and all will do well. Adieu, my dear child. End of section 51. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.